The Democratic National Convention dominated headlines this week. It heralds the beginning of what will no doubt be a hectic fall news cycle nationally and here in the Capital Region. We're in for a busy, bumpy ride. But summer ain't over yet. On this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over this week's top stories. You can't do takeout business if you're a gym. We'll hear from local school leaders as they prepare for the start of a very unusual year. The technology we have been using, we have been able to collaborate much more through the tech. And we'll learn about a local woman's nightmarish struggle with COVID-19. Coronavirus does not get to tell me when it's when it's over this is the eagle a times union podcast a look inside our newsroom i'm jessica marshall if you're enjoying this podcast take advantage of all the times union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. Let's start with a look at what appeared this week in the Times Union and on timesunion.com. Once again, we are here with our editor, Casey Seiler, who is now working out of our office, which is very exciting, which means that uh, things are moving fast here in Times Union land. First of all, welcome back to the office. (laughs) Thanks. It was very weird to walk in on Monday, and I am here with, uh, I think, less than a half dozen people in the newsroom right now. Um, And I'm, of course, here in my office. When I get up to go to the men's room, I put a mask on. but uh, it, you know, it's it's nice to be back. I will say I am a little bit homesick for uh, my attic office. You, the human organism, apparently can get used to just about anything. But um, you know, I, I'm wearing a tie again. All right. So our New York State Governor Andrew Cuomo made a bunch of headlines this week, uh, probably on the national scale. And we talked about this a little bit last week. We previewed that he would uh, be making a speech at the Democratic National Convention. He has since made that speech. New Yorkers were ground zero for the COVID virus and have gone from one of the highest infection rates on the globe to one of the lowest. We climbed the impossible mountain. And right now we are on the other side. What was your estimation of said speech? It was very brief. It was very much in keeping with the governor's role as sort of the the face of responsible um, leadership during the coronavirus crisis. The the setting of the speech very much looked like one of his uh, daily briefings. The arc of uh, New York's infections was deployed as a graphic, and the governor once again used the a couple of metaphors, uh, including the mountaineering metaphor. You know, we climbed this mountain together which, you know, a lot of people, including myself, think is a rather problematic metaphor, considering that the mountain is made up of people who got sick and people who died. But there you go. The governor continues to use it. But then he moved on and said that uh, that coronavirus and COVID-19 was, in fact, a metaphor, that the virus was a metaphor for what this country is going through, that there is a larger sickness here of intolerance, of, you know, improper behavior in office basically lambasting the the Trump administration. We know that our problems go beyond the COVID virus. COVID is the symptom, not the illness. 
uh, it was a big week for the governor as well in the sense that we learned more details about a book that he has written about his performance during or his experience during the health crisis that's going to be coming out from uh, an imprint of Random House in October. The governor has refused to disclose how much he is going to make off that book. Um, as our columnist Chris Churchill noted in a column this week, it would appear that the governor has timed the announcement and perhaps the signing of contracts around the book in order to not have to disclose that amount until as much as a year from now. I don't know if the governor is going to continue to feel pressure to release um, some kind of sense of how much he's going to make off this book. The governor's last book, if memory serves, paid him uh, an advance of almost $750,000, I think. That book, All Things Possible, was famous as being a huge bust. It was a complete bomb when it came out. It, um, unfortunately, the publication kind of corresponded with a political campaign and some other things that were, um, were going on. The governor didn't really do much in the, in the way of promotion for it, just a couple of, a couple of friendly interviews. And the book was a, was a huge failure to the point that it has not yet been released in paperback which is pretty remarkable. This book, of course, is gonna have much higher interest. It has been put together, goodness knows, very quickly. Apparently, the governor has already submitted it. The governor, or more likely a, a writer who he is working with, has submitted it already. So, um, and of course, he's taken criticism from the fact that uh, the book is coming out when the nation is still grappling with this health crisis. So. This is, uh, I believe, the, the uh, dramatological term is in media rest. It's going on in the middle of the action. But yeah, it's go. likely to be maybe outdated if something else major happens in the next couple of weeks. And yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're Random House, the terror that you're going to have is, of course, just the terror of a new large spike in New York that would make people, you know, first of all, afraid just to go out to a bookstore, which people are concerned about enough uh, already, but would also render the governor's quickie book, you know, sort of out of time already. That's how quickly this situation can change. As for example, the governors of Texas and Florida and Georgia and lots of other states found out much to their displeasure. Now, Cuomo also made a big announcement uh, about uh, gyms reopening this week. So what are the circumstances surrounding that one? Yeah, gyms, um, which have been clamoring to be allowed to reopen, got the go-ahead and uh, got the protocols that they will need to put in place, which of course involves uh, vastly reduced occupancy within their facilities, and anybody getting a workout will have to wear a face mask, all of which of course makes perfectly good sense. The gyms had said, come on, we've done all this work, we've reconfigured, you know, we've moved the exercise machines around so everybody can be socially distanced. But it's, it's life and death for these businesses. I mean, uh, you know, restaurants can do takeout business. You can't do takeout business if you're a gym. You can't do takeout business if you're, for example, a movie theater, which are now kind of at the vanguard of wanting to see when they will be able to reopen. The governor has said, you know, in terms of being essential, gyms are more essential than movie theaters. So mm -hmm. as, as a film fan uh, and also somebody who at least occasionally likes to work out, I, I would agree with him on that. Well, I know a lot of film critics who do not agree with that estimation. <laughs> However, we'll see what happens with movie theaters. 
In Troy this week, uh, our two senators were in town uh, and they were talking about the post office. What did they say? Yes, Claire Bryan, who is a, a, a new a byline, uh, she will be with us. She's a new Hearst Fellow. On her first day, she went out to uh, the press conference with Chuck Schumer and, and Kirsten Gillibrand, who joined other public officials to denounce the Postmaster General, of course, amid all the controversy about the U.S. Postal Service being stripped in many cases of resources. The, the Postal Service faces, a, a, or has for a long time, faced financial headwinds. Um, and the accusation is that the Postmaster General, who is a longtime supporter of the president and was just appointed in June, is essentially trying to, not to put too fine a point on it, sabotage the Postal Service in order to throw doubt into the uh, vote by mail system. The Postmaster General just a couple of weeks ago warned states that have moved to uh, universal absentee um, voting, you know, um, amid the coronavirus, of course, and has warned them that uh, their legal timelines, which each state is allowed to set for getting ballots out and then getting ballots back, might not comport with what the Postal Service is able to provide. That has caused a huge hue and cry. Uh, the Trump administration has said, well, if Democrats want to get proper funding, for the Postal Service, they need to come back to the table to deal on other coronavirus um, bills. So this is all coming to a head uh, this coming weekend when the House of Representatives is supposed to come back to address these and other questions. But both senators also called on the Postmaster General to appear and take questions from um, that House committee and that is supposed to happen on Monday. That is no doubt going to be a lively appearance. Sure, and it's, uh, it seems like it's the harbinger of the season to come. We're about to enter that really uh, frenetic election season come you know, September. So we'll have lots to look forward to. Yeah, indeed. One final bit of news to discuss, uh, one final headline here. Albany County has just come out with some buyouts. They're going to start uh, asking people to accept a $15,000 buyout um, at a time when uh, money is tight. What is the story there? Yeah, Dan McCoy, the county executive, announced this on Thursday. As you noted, workers are going to be offered $15,000 to take a buyout. The county is facing a potential budget hole of $40 million, as Steve Hughes reported. Um, you know, Mayor Kathy Sheehan, County Executive McCoy, they have all been putting off these very, very hard decisions about um, workforce reductions in the hope that Washington, D.C. will come forth with aid for localities who have just been decimated by the health crisis. So far, that has not been forthcoming. Republicans in Congress have said, well, that type of aid would just be a bailout for blue states. And um, it is, it's turned into another flashpoint for uh, contention between the parties in D.C. But on the ground, if you're a county executive and you're looking at the growing gap between what you're taking in and what you're putting out, this is the type of, of move that you, um, that you reach for first before, of course, you simply have to give people the pink slip, as it were. Indeed, we'll be following that. Thank you so much, Casey, and we'll check back in with you next week for more top headlines. Jess, it's good to be in the office. You should come join us.
I think I might. I think I might. Earlier this month, Governor Andrew Cuomo gave school districts the green light to reopen in the fall. As they prepare feverishly to meet state requirements, many parents and teachers and other stakeholders have voiced concern about published plans to get back to school. Times Union education reporter Rachel Silberstein recently spoke with Albany School District Superintendent Coeda Adams, Gilderland Superintendent Marie Wiles, Questar 3 BOCI Superintendent Gladys Cruz, and Albany Academy's head of school, Christopher Loricella, on a Times Union live broadcast. Here's a segment of their conversation. Of course, we learn more every day about how the disease is transmitted, and you have to take that to consideration as the plans evolve. Um, but there's also regulatory changes. Every, you know, the governor holds regular press briefings, and last week we learned that schools had a new requirement of, you know, holding more parent forums and publishing easy-to-find information about contact tracing, um, testing, and remote learning on on the website. Um, is this something that um, I guess we'll start with the public school districts? Is this something that you guys were already had scheduled and lined up for the next month, or is this kind of the heavy lift fitting in? these new requirements. Well, I'll go ahead and start. Uh, Kawita Adams City School District of Albany. As part of our plan, one of the things that we did a few weeks ago, we did hold uh, our initial parent meetings and forums to lay out what the plan consisted of and go through those details. And we did them at the elementary level, the middle level, and the high school level. And we also held student forums and we also held our employee or our employee forums, which, you know, that included our teachers and support staff. So once the announcement came out, uh, we had already planned of having three additional teacher and staff forums as well as parent forums. And so we're just trying to schedule to make sure that we allow those opportunities for the three district-wide forums at the elementary, middle, and high school level for parents, and then separate forums for faculty and staff. And then our schools will host their individual forums while we have a district-wide approach to what that reopening looks like. There may be unique adjustments at the individual schools and parents wanting to know more about scheduling and things like that. Gotcha. Marie, is that similar to what's happening at Gilderland? We had also offered some um, opportunities to engage with our families prior to the governor's announcement and had planned to do some additional ones. So we really just had to look at our scheduling to get all of them in by the 21st. So, but throughout the summer, our building principals have been holding um, uh, voluntary faculty meetings and they've been getting tremendous turnout because there's so much hunger for answers uh, that, you know, communicating is huge. Unfortunately, you know, the ans we have more questions than answers most of the time. But as uh, we work through the summer, we're, we're getting better. We're pulling things together. I know the governor keeps mentioning public school districts, but are charter schools and independent schools, are they also required to do these forums? That's our understanding, Rachel. And, and you know, we have the privilege of being scaled differently. We have the privilege of being a single site. So, so, you know, we don't have all the constraints that our public school colleagues have in terms of just the number of constituents and stakeholders that, that they serve. So um, we've probably already met and exceeded the threshold that the governor put out on, on Friday. Um, we had our uh, parents 
actually uh, review this, the plan that we came up with online, leave comments, and then we did a series. We've done, we're up to about four different four webinars now that we've already done with parents. Uh, same as Gilderland, our teachers have been in voluntarily all summer. And yesterday they actually started taking the plan apart. And the same, the same thing, our, our faculty, because they have to deliver on the plan, ask really good granular classroom-based class questions that administrators may not think of. And so we're just in this open dialogue about um, each question leading to three or four more questions that we have to figure out. Um, and they've been incredible, uh, our faculty have, in terms of helping us refine the plan. And our, our parents too, remembering that they also pay a tuition, not just enroll, um, we need to meet not just what the state is asking of us, but what our, our community is asking who's paying a tuition to come to the school. Gladys, you have more of a regional perspective. I know that superintendents have regional meetings regularly. Has these new sort of last minute requirements put a burden, additional burden on school districts as a whole, or is this something they are used to rolling with the punches with? For our BOCES, I'll start with our BOCES. So we, I have been holding a virtual town halls for staff members since March, since the pandemic um, started. And these have been very well attended and um, we've been able to get a lot of their questions but answer a lot of the questions as well. And then we've also been holding um, parent uh, forums, virtual parent forums with uh, um, the last month. So we had already been in that groove and the same thing with our districts. Our districts have been hosting um, staff and parent forums. So it was a matter of ensuring that we could comply with the um, three forms for parents before August 21st and the additional uh, form for, uh, for the staff. But in our case, we have definitely um, met many more times than the governor's request. School superintendents, they keep telling me it's like the hardest they've ever worked in their careers. Um, it's been like nonstop meetings and Zoom conferences. Can you tell me about like how it's been for you? Like everything changing every day and making these life and death decisions on a daily basis? Chris, do you want to start? Yeah, it's uh, the best I've heard it described is, uh, well, there's two things. It's, it's like being on a roller coaster. And it's also like signing up for a marathon, but you're not really sure when the marathon ends and you didn't really... Uh, agree to sign up for the marathon. You just happen to find yourself in it. So, so, so those two sort of things. Um, it, and it is sort of becoming expert in esoterica that you never thought you'd have to become expert in. Um, and um, everybody is looking for some sort of certainty, surety, or some sort of authority that will help them through this for their family. It's the most important thing they do is raise their children. Um, and there's a burden to that. There's a weight to that. You know, when you become that point person for your community. Um, I would say the, the only other thing, and this is not a, this is just an observation. Um, when I go to look for, a, a, you know, somebody outside of my school, who are the authorities, it's such a stew out there that it's hard to figure out, you know, what is real and what is not real and what's, what is information and, and, and that is, that is valuable. So it's just a very interesting time. And that's what we do. We're educators. So we're used to sort of having a right answer. Um, there is no right answer right now. And the answer I give you today is gonna to change tomorrow. Marie, is that your, tell me about how it's been going for you. I, I compare it to cross country skiing and uh, you know, under normal times you have a groomed path and sometimes there's an obstacle in it that you have to work around. But now there's no groomed path. It's all uphill, there's lots of ice. It's a whiteout and there's a cliff, but you're not quite sure where the cliff is. 
and everybody is following you and depending on you. That's how I think about it. It's a good analogy. Kawita, how's, it, how's your summer going? You know, our summer has been very busy. Um, it's really challenged us to, number one, think more deeply about the work that we do, and then understand that when we're getting the questions and when people are you know, angst and amped about different things that are happening. It comes from that place of the uncertainty in their own lives and they're looking for that certainty. And as school districts and as schools, we have been able to be that source of stability in our communities. Because no matter what happens, you knew that your kids were gonna go to school, you knew they would go whatever the time is, eight to three, proverbially, you know, you knew that was going to be the case. Now we don't. And so that uncertainty that our families are feeling is because of the uncertainty in their own lives, but also the thing that has been stable for them is also uncertain. And so, as Chris said, we're used to having the answers. So we're used to routinely opening our schools. We have food deliveries. We have food, you know, food services available for our kids. We have transportation available for our kids. There are a lot of things that were, I'm not gonna say taken for granted, but just were part of that expectation that were not worries, whereas now they are. But also, I will say that one of the pieces, whether it's positive, negative, or indifferent, the level of engagement of our community has increased substantially. We are hearing from our communities, and again, I'll say from our families, whether it's positive, negative, or indifferent, we are at least hearing from our families. And that way we are able to make decisions based on their feedback, based on the data, knowing that all of us are thinking about this in the best interest for our students. We may come from a different lens. We may think that things need to be done a different way, but at the core of it, we are all looking to do the best thing for our children. And hopefully, you know, education, in New York will be even better than before the pandemic, given that we have all those new tools. I mean, what are you guys' thoughts? Do you think that this has sort of transformed education as we know it? Well, one thing we can say, and I would say, is that um, we can't go back to what we had. Yeah. And we've been able to uh, use technology in ways that we never thought we would use uh, technology. Right now you're having this panel using technology. Um, and uh, we, we, for many years, have tried to integrate technology into the classrooms. Now we have learned that it can be done. It's not perfect. It's, it's hard, but it can be done. And there are children, actually, that we learned that are very successful in this mode. So I think we can't go back and just dismiss the technology we have been using. We have been able to collaborate much more through the technology. We don't have to run to meetings. We can do it right from our offices. Um, so, uh, you know, I think we need to embrace those things we learned um, along, uh, you know, th during this time and move forward to a new reality. All right. Great challenge brings great opportunity. And we're, we're learning from this. We learn every single day. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you very thank much. You. Have a great day. 
You can find the entire conversation Rachel Silberstein had with the school leaders at timesunion.com or on our Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube channels. After the break, we'll hear about a local woman's month-long struggle to overcome the complications of COVID-19. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. More than 2,600 people in Albany County have tested positive for COVID-19 since the pandemic first reached the capital region. Reporter Masara Makati recently wrote about the struggle one local woman faced with the virus. 45-year-old Walkino Howard was among the local COVID patients who experienced serious complications from the virus early on in the pandemic. I talked to Masara about her chronicling of Howard's nightmarish struggle with recovery. So tell me about Joaquino Howard and what you learned about her. So I was introduced to Joaquino Howard through Lisa Good, who's the executive director of Urban Grief. I was looking to do a story on the impact of COVID-19 on the Black community. And Joaquino had posted this video on Facebook that went um, pretty viral. I mean, it had thousands of views. And she was telling this saga of her experience with COVID-19. And this was back in April. So imagine, I already don't feel good. I went and got the test. They told me it was going to take three to four days. Essentially what happened, she contracted COVID-19 in March at choir practice, choir rehearsal at the church that she goes to, Mount Baptist Church in Albany. Um, She was exposed to it through a fellow congregant. And she pretty soon after that started to feel a little bit sick, a little bit of a fever. She went to the hospital and told them her symptoms and they tested her for flu and strep, both of which came back negative. The doctor said, I don't think you have COVID, even though this was when COVID was becoming very prominent in the area. He said, I don't think you have COVID, but I'll go ahead and write you a script to get a test anyways, and we'll see, you know, how it comes out. Lo and behold, she's getting sicker and sicker. She's waiting in line for an hour and a half at Samaritan Hospital to get her COVID test. And again, this is right at the beginning of the pandemic when it was not easy to get the care you needed. It was not easy to get tested. Uh, A lot of people had to pay to get their COVID-19 test or their insurance had to cover it. So this was when care was not as accessible. She waited in the middle of March, as cold as it is outside, in this line for an hour and a half. She already knew what the test results were going to be. She she knew how she was feeling. It was the only thing that made sense since the other test came back negative. And then as she's leaving after she got tested, the Schenectady County Department of Health called her and told her to quarantine for two weeks because she had been exposed. She had come in contact with someone who had COVID-19. A few days later, the test comes back positive. So over the course of the next few months, Walkino ended up visiting area emergency rooms five times, and she was admitted to the hospital twice. And one of the times she was admitted to the hospital, they let her go in the evening only to have to readmit her the following morning. And you just see this experience that she had of 
not being believed. The bigger picture here is that, of course, during this time of the pandemic, doctors weren't prepared. Doctors did not know what they were dealing with. They were kind of more or less flying by the seat of their pants. But there was another layer, which is that Volcano is a Black woman. And research has shown time and time and time again that Black patients are treated differently than white patients. And so while an element of this could be that a lot of other people have had similar experiences, Black, white, whatever, but there's also the added element that she is a Black woman, that Black women, Black patients in general, have historically been shown to be mistreated, misappropriately treated, undertreated in the healthcare system. So each experience she had with doctors, and she visited both St. Peter's and Albany Memorial, almost every experience was just skepticism. And she said, she said, and she's had experience with the healthcare system before. It's not her first interaction, right? So it's nothing new to her. She said, as a Black person, they just think that you want pills. They don't actually believe you. And you have to advocate for yourself so strongly. You know, then a, a study came out, I think it was published, I want to say it was published in May, but there was this Boston-based firm that did research on, you know, how patients are being treated by COVID-19. And they looked at 27,000 patients in seven states and found that Black patients were six times less likely to get treated or tested for COVID-19. Six times. <laughs> I mean, and, and you see this, right? Like the mortality rate has been disproportionately in Black and Latino communities. The contraction rate has been disproportionately in Black and Latino communities. But what's even more telling is the mortality rate because maybe it could have been prevented. One of the interesting things uh, about the story that you had told me previously was that obviously you said initially she was tested in March and in April, you know, she was going through all these things and you had um, started reporting on her experience then. And now it's, you know, four months later and the story's coming out. So tell me kind of, you know, how the story developed over time and why now it's still important to talk about her experience. Well, so she first tested positive for COVID-19 in March, right? Middle of March. And now we are in middle end of August and Volcano still has not recovered. When she first tested positive for COVID-19 and she kept going to the hospital because she had this very severe chest pain. At that time, at the very beginning of the pandemic, doctors were focused on lungs being affected. And then the second hospital she went to when she went to Albany Memorial, the doctor that she saw there had somehow heard or done some research, heard something that, you know what, maybe COVID-19 could be impacting your heart too. So he decided to do an echocardiogram on her and found that she had congestive heart failure. So she needed to see a cardiologist. She couldn't make an appointment with a cardiologist because she still had COVID-19 and the cardiologist's office that was recommended to her didn't have the PPE to be able to see her. Even three weeks after she had tested positive for COVID, she went to get retested to try to get this appointment, and she tested positive for COVID-19 again. And now remember, everyone is saying two weeks and you're done. You're going to have COVID-19 for two weeks, and then it's going to go away. Three weeks later, it didn't go away. So for months and months, she's trying to get this appointment with the cardiologist's office to figure out how to treat her heart, and she can't get in. So they're just prescribing her medication. 
She ended up having to go back to the emergency room two times because of the pain that she had in her chest. The congestive heart failure was just getting worse and worse. The inflammation was just getting worse and worse. There was nothing that was getting better. I spoke with her a number of times over the past few months. The first time I spoke with her, she was extremely ill. The second time I spoke with her, she was starting to feel better, but it was like hit and miss. There were some days where she was okay. There were some days where she wasn't. The third time I spoke with her, she was definitely feeling probably like 80% back to normal. But even in August, I spoke with her on August 19th, and she said that she still doesn't feel back to normal. So this is what, March to April, May, June, July, five months after she tested positive for COVID-19, the congestive heart failure hasn't gone away. She's never had cardiovascular issues before in her life. It still hasn't gone away. The doctors are just monitoring her, but they're not admitting her to a hospital. They just said that they have to keep monitoring it. I knew that I had been affected by it. I knew that I had this. I was scared I was going to die. The Facebook Live video that Mm -hmm. Joaquino Howard made, tell me about that. I watched it myself, and, you know, she's clearly very, very emotional and and very ill. Tell me about that. Joaquino had the courage to come forward with her story because she wants to shed light on these issues. She wants to show that this is what happened to her She's sure that it's happening to other people and that maybe by talking about it, people will be more aware and alert and do something about it, do something different. I'm so angry, guys. I was so angry. I was so angry. I was angry, y'all. I was angry. And, you know, as you're watching the video and you're seeing the comments flooding in, everyone is supporting her. Everyone is praying for her. But there's this sense of despair in her tone and real fear. And she had that real fear when I was talking to her too. She told me, this is my heart. I don't want to get a heart attack when you guys could have prevented this. I honestly don't want to lay down and die. And I think she was kind of teetering on that edge during this entire experience of not knowing if she was going to wake up the next day. Coronavirus does not get to tell me when to take me. It does not have that. The master has the final say. So, you know, where, what are you looking, you know, for in your reporting, you know, in the next days, months? Are you following her story? Are you looking for more people who are, have gone through similar situations? What are your thoughts for your reporting going forward? Well, when all of this first started, and this is how I became introduced to Alkino, I wanted to do an in-depth story explaining why Black and Latino people uh, were contracting COVID-19 and dying from COVID-19 at a higher rate than white people. I wanted to explain why they have underlying health conditions and the systemic racism that has contributed to those underlying health conditions and the systemic racism that has contributed to them being more at risk of contracting the the virus in the first place. That's still something I'm interested in, but I think at this point, so many months have gone by that if anything, moving forward, it's looking at patients like Walkino, who months after they contracted the virus, are still ill. And 
as you know, medicine is trying to figure out and is starting to discover how the virus is ravaging bodies and how there are these long-term effects. And I think that's probably the next thing to look into is for people months after they contract it, how are they recovering from it? Are they recovering from it? And especially for people of color, it's almost like the aftermath of a hurricane or the aftermath of a monsoon, right? What does that community look like in the days and the months after the pandemic moves its way through that community? What do families look like? What are they experiencing financially, emotionally, health-wise? And so I think it's just following up with the aftermath of the, of the virus and and also seeing, you know, if the if the healthcare system is actually changing, are they becoming more aware? Are they being intentional about treating their patients with more equity now that they see the disparities? Well, that's no no small challenge that you have ahead of you there, and we're yeah, moving forward to, to to your reporting, and we'll touch back with you because I'm sure there'll be a lot more to talk about. So thank you so yeah, much for joining me. Thank you. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features.